watchers in the fourth dimension. You remember we were talking about not remembering things? Do you know, in the last push, we lost over 100 shovels. You are the one who will answer questions. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you know, not many women take an interest in the problems of supply. This episode, we begin our discussion of the final story of the 1960s, the final story of the black and white era, and the final Patrick Troughton story. It's a big one. It's the War Games. Before we move further, a quick disclaimer, this story is so long that we're breaking it up into two podcast episodes. Our behind-the-scenes information will be covered in this episode, along with the first half of the story. Next episode, we will cover the second half of the story and then rate it as a whole, and both halves will have their own short summary. So with that, on to our behind-the-scenes information. We trace the roots of this story back to the summer of 1968, a good 10-ish months before the first part was broadcast. Plans were already afoot for the end of season six, and it was planned that the penultimate story of the season would be Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln's The Laird of McCrimmon. If you've listened to our episode on The Dominators, you will know that the relationship between the two writers and the production team broke down over the merchandise rights to the quarks of all things. This meant that the proposed story was very quickly withdrawn. Obviously, a replacement story was needed, and Malcolm Hulk, who had been one of the co-writers on The Faceless Ones, was drafted in to write a replacement, tentatively entitled The Replacements. After The Replacements, the season was planned to end with an unnamed four-part story to be penned by the then-script editor Derek Sherwin. By late summer, Patrick Troughton had decided that he would be leaving the show at the end of the sixth season. Fraser Hines, who had also already decided to leave earlier in the season, would actually be persuaded to stay until the end with Troughton. Sherwin and then-producer Peter Bryant had hoped that Wendy Padbury could be persuaded to stay on as Zoe into season seven, which would see a huge revamp for the show as it made the transition to colour. However, in early 1969, she decided to leave the show with Troughton and Hines, meaning that season seven would have an entirely new cast. Back on the scripting front, Bryant and Sherwin did not like Hulk's work on The Impersonators. Oh, it was called The Impersonators, not The Replacements. And Sherwin's own story was, was also running into problems. <laughs> with time running out, the unusual decision was made to merge the two slots into one ten-part story, which would be the longest since season three's The Daleks Master Plan. Hulk was asked to collaborate with script editor Terence Dixon on the story, and as they were already good friends, they got along famously. With Dix being given special permission to write the story, this meant that no script editor would be credited on screen. Now, with three months until production, Dix and Hulk had to work extremely quickly. They took the unusual steps of writing the serial in two five-part blocks, providing them with milestones in the writing process. As they were concerned over the running time, they added in a number of narrative devices to keep the story fresh and interesting. Different time zones, and a revolving cast, for example. The duo also worked closely with the assigned director David Maloney, previously seen directing The Crotons, who made some of his own suggestions, such as the hypnotism being represented by the officers donning their spectacles when they were originally, as scripted, going to speak in an alien voice, whatever that means. By the time production began, Peter Bryant had stepped away from the show, and Derek Sherwin officially took on the mantle of producer. With such a long serial under his auspices, the decision was made to double the length of pre-filming, which ate into the recording time for the previous serial, The Space Pirates. Like many other stories of the time, this one featured both studio work and location work. Notably, No Man's Land was represented by the Sheepcote Valley rubbish tip in Brighton, 
which eagle-eyed viewers would have recognised since the location served as the exact same purpose in Richard Attenborough's film production of Oh What a Lovely War, which had just been released to theatres. Providing incidental music, we once again have the return of Dudley Simpson to the show, providing music I think for the 11th time. As designer, we have the sole contribution of Roger Chevalier, who had previously worked on Softly Softly and Hadley, and he would later become a director working on Emmerdale Farm, which Fraser Hines was on for a very long time, Coronation Street, Supergran, and She-Wolf of London. As costumer, we once again have the return of Nicholas Bulin, making his last contribution to the show. It was during recording that Bryant and Sherwin started the process of casting the new Doctor. First choice was Ron Moody, who had recently played the role of Fagin in the film version of the musical Oliver. He turned down the part, a move that he would later admit to regretting. Also under consideration were John Le Musserier, who played a regular role in Dad's Army, and Stratford Johns, who was a regular in the one and only Zed Cars and its spin-off, Softly Softly Task Force. <laughs> The role eventually went to John Pertwee, whose name had been submitted to, by his agent, and surprisingly, his was actually the, the very next name on Peter Bryant's list. The casting was announced to the press on June the 17th, 1969, along with the announcement that the next season would not begin until January 1970. Four days after this was announced, final episode of The War Games was broadcast, bringing the Patrick Troughton era to an end. The short summary is with me this episode. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm fed up of talking, guys. The TARDIS crew lands in a desolate wasteland, and after a brief chuckle about mud, they rapidly realise that they are in the horrors of World War I. Or are they? We spend a few episodes with our intrepid heroes repeatedly being captured, accused of being spies, and subsequently escaping. Miraculously, this somehow manages to remain highly entertaining. They eventually discover that there are multiple time zones covering multiple wars with a ragtag bunch of resistance fighters to help them save the day. Hints about the Doctor's origins abound, and we get a suave villain with facial hair who is absolutely not the master showing up, along with a gullible and totally oblivious chief scientist, and a security chief who inexplicably seems to have decided to talk like a Dalek. We end the first half of the story with all of our heroes finding their way to the Alien HQ, with Jamie apparently being gunned down in an ambush at the end. How will Julie possibly cope? Until next time. It's the weirdest episode of Black Adder Goes Forth ever. <laughs> I if did only think about did drawing that parallel. I was thinking that the entire time of the first episode. What if we just switched out the characters with the Black Adder Goes Forth characters for the World War I? How wonderful that would have been. There would be a lot of one-to-one -one replacements. <laughs> yeah. We definitely have Carstairs as Hugh Laurie, uh, Smythe as Melchit by yeah. Stephen Fry, Ramsey as... Uh, Ransom as Darling would be Darling. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have a Lord Flashheart. No. I wanted him to show up at any time they were in trouble. <laughs> also, I have somehow managed to derail the conversation immediately. This is a new record for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I have nothing to add. <laughs> I have not seen Blackadder. We begin with them apparently standing at the door to the TARDIS while it's materializing and pretty much just falling out. Oh. Yes. And they're laughing their asses off. Yeah. Don't know what they're laughing about, but they are. But even before that, I just want to talk about the new opening credits. Epilepsy uh, warning. <laughs> that. But I like that it was something different. It was very much, this is what we're getting into. If you didn't know from the title by itself, there's a war coming. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
we definitely kind of see that even before the TARDIS lands. We get that wonderful, eerie panning shot with the camera before you hear the materialization sound. Mm -hmm. Much as the Doctor and friends start out by laughing, that doesn't last long and terror is soon raining down on them. I, I think it's really well done. You know, it hammers home the point of how grim this setting is really quickly. Sorry to harp on this again. I do this every now and then. A total failure of the TARDIS's threat warning system to drop them there <laughs> and not show them a better place somewhere else. Yeah, I find it interesting that the TARDIS makes this decision because we know that the TARDIS has a mind of its own and it lands them in the middle of bad things. At least it could have been like, you know what? Let's at least like get behind one of the lines, honestly. It doesn't really matter which one and, and go from there. You know, it is possible that they could have had it start off with them at Alien HQ, but that would have ruined the mystery, I guess. Very much so. I do like how this starts out as it seems like our old school pure historical, but then yep. we keep adding layers that let us know that it's not quite what it appears. I really like that. No, I, I definitely agree because I, again, having no real knowledge on this one was definitely like, all right, this is going to all be set in World War One. Strange, but OK. And that's not what happened. Mm -mm. Speaking of things I like, I really like Lady Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's, she's fantastic. Kinda, her and car stairs or truck elevators, I also called them. They had <laughs> they, they kind of reminded me of Barbara and Ian just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, I, liked them. I, yeah, I, I can kind of see that. I liked them. I wanted to see them together. I wanted them to hang out more. Agree. So obligatory expanded universe reference. God. Sorry, oh. Don. Oh, boy. <laughs> they, they do apparently end up married after this. Oh, there's okay, that. There is that. So I got really confused by some of the cuts that they did because it looked like they were being captured by the Germans and then... I don't really know exactly how it worked out that then they weren't captured by the Germans. That wasn't a really good sequence, honestly. They were captured and then immediately rescued <laughs> and were therefore captured again. <laughs> and then accused just, of being German spies. It was just a really weird sequence. I think it's almost a commentary on how within Troughton's era, they spend a lot of time being captured. <laughs> I think there's a lot in this story, a lot of commentary on the Troughton era. Mm -hmm. I mean, Don, you already mentioned the pure historical. And of course, the last pure historical was right at the beginning of the Troughton era with the Highlanders, the mm -hmm. second story. And we start out with something that we haven't seen since the start of the Troughton era. And then I, I think very much in the middle, we start to see other things. And I'll, I'll come back to that when we're around episode five. Even in this one, we get a return to an old favorite, which is mind control. Yes. And manipulation, which showed up a lot mm -hmm. in Troughton's first season. Yes, and we, yes, it we did. see that once we meet a character who I think in any other serial would have been really the big bad, mm -hmm. General Smythe. And he's just a pawn in a bigger game. Yeah. Another thing that I have a commentary on, it's not like a theme, but the music was much more stable, I'll call it, in this go around because it all fit very well. And I really liked it in certain places. It didn't have as many like really weird circus music like we've had in the past. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, there we go. This is more of what I'm expecting. I thought the musical cue was used a bit too often, or at least that specific one. I wish it had a little bit more variety to it. But after a while, I remember, I think maybe in episode four or three, the doctor enters Smythe's office. There's no suspense there and they just play the cue. I'm like, there's no reason to play this cue. It's just they were afraid because there was, I guess, a minute where there was no dialogue. 
I, I, I think the cue could have been varied a bit. Thinking about what Julie was saying, there's nothing weird in the music. I think that's generally a sign of how seriously this story is taking the First World War. Mm -hmm. For us Brits, we think of World War One as being more horrifying than World War Two. World War Two was a just war. We were going off to fight the Nazis and to save Europe, whereas World War One was basically triggered by a bunch of alliances and forcing an entire generation into the trenches to fight a futile war. From watching a lot of British media, I've always noticed such a focus on World War One over World War Two, and I was kind of confused by that because from my limited knowledge about it, I would assume that World War II, because it's more recent, and because of the battle over Britain, the bombings, that it would be a little bit more in the British psyche than World War One. But World War One seems to be more of the focus. Well, World War One wiped out basically 50% of a generation of young men. Ah, yeah. well, there you go. And then immediately afterwards, we had the Spanish flu, which wiped out basically another 20% of that same generation. The death toll for World War One was horrific. You know, if you go to, to France and Belgium today, you can go and tour the trenches and get an idea wow. of how horrific the war was. I think that's partly why this is being treated so seriously, even at a musical level. And, you know, but there are some elements of comedy. There's that wonderful little part where the TARDIS crew are being marched in and <laughs> Jamie stamps on the doctor's foot. But they're few yeah. and far between. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhat comedy, but it's also just him at half-assing it for a reason. And it's, you know, he's like, there's no reason for us to be here. We shouldn't be captured and all of that. And also, he gets really offended and he's like, you damn Sassanak. And I was like, whoa, Jamie, <laughs> yeah. calm down. I think very quickly in this story, and it's faster than I remembered it, but we start realizing something's amiss. We see General Smythe talking to the telecom device behind the portrait in his office. We see him hypnotizing Ransom, Major Barrington, and a couple of others, and telling them that the TARDIS crew are definitely guilty. I mean, it's, it's very brutal military justice. The whole court-martial scene where Smythe is just, just runs him out on a rail was very succinct and very yeah. brutal and to the point. <laughs> it's, it was the most efficient court proceeding I've ever seen. <laughs> I think there's a very strong anti-war sentiment running through this story, and particularly anti-military leadership who are being portrayed as unforgiving and somewhat incompetent. If you think about what was going on at the time, the big war was Vietnam. So I'm kind of reading this yeah. as, as having a bit of an anti-Vietnam sentiment behind the story as well. There is definitely a very large anti-war anti-pointless war streak running through the whole thing. Yeah, especially with the World War One, but also when we hit on some of the others and then the whole premise of a school of, of sorts, learning all of these different like war pieces and things like that, where it's just, that's just a commentary in and of itself of men messing with war just for the sake of messing with war and forcing these people to relive it over and over and over again, basically. And that's just kind of terrifying to a certain degree. There's also a very strange, in this first episode, certainly a little bit of commentary on, on the British stiff upper lip, chin up attitude. When we first meet Barrington, we hear him on the phone saying, right, sir, we'll go over the top tomorrow. And he's mm. almost kind of cheerful. And that's basically a death sentence. They're going to go over the top of the trenches and get gunned down, like at, uh, to Don's point, the end of Blackadder. And then after our heroes have received their sentencing, 
you know, it's almost complete cognitive dissonance. He he turns to Zoe and, you know, the doctor's just been sentenced to death. And he just says, chin up, my dear, with a huge smile on his face. And it's like, dude. <laughs> I think it has to do with how, because of the horrors of war, it requires people to compartmentalize a lot of things. Yeah. And that's just an example of it where it's just, you have to do that or you would truly just go mad by how you would witness so many terrible things. And also you mentioned about how callous and uncaring the leaders are. There's that scene, I'm getting ahead of myself, where Smythe and I guess I will call him Colonel Clink for now to make a Hogan's Heroes reference. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And- <laughs> Three. Yeah, an alien HQ, and they just start doing like a playful, like, well, what if I do this? And what if I do this? Is that they're playing Battleship? It's actually in this episode where they start laying down some really good hints that things are not entirely what they seem. Aside from Smythe Mm -hmm. talking on his phone thing, you also get when he kind of disappears and they don't show exactly how it happens, you get a little TARDIS like noise happening. Yep. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was very cool, very subtle. The other thing to note was people forgetting things mm-hmm. was already mentioned. They handled that quite nicely because Carstairs shakes it off and says, well, m- must be shell shock. I'm, I'll, I'll be fine. That whole PTSD thing is very real with World War One, but it is something else here. And I think that helps almost make some of those other hints add up, but equally keep some of the surprise because it can be explained away with something very real. It keeps it grounded yes. and believable. Yes. All right, let's talk about the end of episode one. The sight of the Doctor about to go in front of a firing squad. Mm -mm. Mm. To me, that seems a lot more brutal than almost anything we've seen up to this point. It also is the first of, so far, quite a few very good cliffhangers. Oh, there's a lot of good cliffhangers here. A single shot and cut to cliffhanger. I think you make a very good point, Anthony. Usually with the show, everything is colored by the setting of it being like, oh, we're back in Roman times, or we're back here, or we're in an alien planet or far off into the future. But this is all very practical and within people's recent knowledge of things and to take a whimsical fantasy character and put him in front of a firing squad is quite somber <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> and then and then to end with the the end with the gunshot is just probably the heaviest the show has ever done before it almost yeah. reminds me of a joke that would be made in red dwarf i don't know 20 years later where lister's in a prison with a bunch of waxworks of famous characters and there's a military regime running it and he's looking out the window and he's like oh my god they've just shot winnie the pooh <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, episode two. General Smythe, if you don't want people to barge into your room, lock the door. Okay? Just lock the door. Very true. Also, this was the first hint of the resistance because one of the comments that I had was like, who in the world is helping them? You know, the shot from the cliffhanger was not from from someone that we knew so i was sitting there i was like is there some is it one person i thought that they had one ally and then come to find out oh no it's actually probably someone from the resistance who helped them out really good point i just assumed it was a german attack but i don't think it's ever no because it seemed like a sniper who was just like Mm -hmm. it was a sniper but i I think you might be right i just assumed it was a german sniper and went on but in retrospect that's a really good observation yeah. I thought he had one of those little spike helmets, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't resistance. 
I don't care whether that's what was intended or not. Julie, <laughs> headcanon accepted. It makes more narrative sense because if it was a German, he would have had no qualm of shooting him as well. So I just mm. assumed that it was probably someone from the resistance who didn't want the military killing people. I like it. After that, we get two scenes in very quick succession that really hammer home not as all as it seems. We get, as Don alluded to, General Smythe leaving for his conference and the, the TARDIS-like noise. And we get the red coat being put in the same cell as Jamie. That red coat, excellent cameo by Terry Jones there. It was fantastic. <laughs> I love that sequence. I thought the time that Jamie and the red coat had together was really well done. I liked how they went from kind of a little bit of distrust into trusting each other and things like that. I actually had hoped the red coat stuck around longer, but he didn't. It was really well done. There are a lot of characters in this so far. But I like the fact that they don't introduce them all at once in like a group scene where they're all dressed the same, which is what tends to happen in these. <laughs> I like the fact that we get, you know, a couple people per episode and it really just feels like things are moving along. Yeah. And I think in a 10 part story, it helps keep it fresh, rotating the cast. Yes. As I said in the intro, let's talk about the doctor flagging down the car and pretending to be the prison inspector. Ah, uh, the classic oh. bluff. And it's it's wonderful. Again, it introduces just a little bit of comedy again. I mean, his reaction when he's asked for ID is just, how dare you? I love it so much. And it's like what you said before, how this serial is reflective of Troughton's period in total. And that's a classic Second Doctor move. Very much so. Just pretend that you're someone you're not and go full force. With complete confidence. And I really love the juxtaposition. We have Jamie and the Redcoats escape attempt at the same time as the Doctor is there to rescue him. It's, it's a lovely little thing and almost a little mirror of what we kind of expect will happen in the end of opposing sides overcoming their differences to escape. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very strong message. Yep. The one thing, though, when they're getting Jamie out, it takes him a little bit too long to figure out just like, you know what? Pretend you don't know them. Can't you catch? Can't you get a hint, Jamie? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the doctor eventually shooting himself in the foot by name dropping General Smythe. And that turns out to just be one step too far for the commandant. But but Zoe then just smashes a vase over his head. Problem solved. Always a good plan B. <laughs> as long as it's not a rock and you're not planning on <laughs> killing the person. There was another opportunity where Zoe had a chance to solve the problem by knocking someone out with the back of the head with something. I kept thinking that would have been a great running joke through the entire serial. If like they're constantly, because they're constantly finding themselves captured and being spies and they're trying to explain themselves out of it. And then it would just be great if we just did it like three or four times that they get out because she just goes behind the person and smacks their head. <laughs> that would have been a good running gag. I, I, I dig that, Riley. This really does start going into escape, capture, escape, capture, but it does stay fresh. Because they're caught and captured in different places by different people. The way that they escape are significantly different and they use clever ways of doing that. I really like in the one where Carstairs first wants to talk to them first and Jennifer has to keep the one guy talking and like he gets to complain about paperwork and supply. <laughs> <laughs> the supply, yeah. One of the ways that they were trying to convince Car Carstairs and them that, you know, something weird was going on was by showing them the screen. It took me a while to really fully understand. It's like, what? Can, can they not see it? And then they finally like showed that shot of like, it not being there and then slowly making an appearance. And I was like, okay, all right. Poor Ransom. I mean, he he gets hypnotized 
so many damn times in this story. <laughs> I, there, there's that joke in in Men in Black where you know is, is the the flashy device going to give people brain cancer? I, I do worry about Ransom and and what the future may hold for him after this story. He seems like a nice fellow too. Yeah. <laughs> We end with them escaping again, this time with Lady Jennifer and Carstairs, and they drive through some sort of mist and uh, end up being charged by Romans. This was probably the weakest of the cliffhangers in that it really cut really oddly and didn't cut with music very well. So I just thought, like, I liked the end with the Romans chasing after them, but I think they could have just timed it a little bit better. Maybe if it was done... Like without it being just delayed as much, if they just should have shown it very quickly and then not have it play out so long and just be a question of like, what the hell was that? Instead of like, oh, there's some Romans in there 500 yards from them. I think it's also cut slightly weirdly just to try and hide the fact that that it's only about 10 Romans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Considering we usually have like two aliens to comprise an entire race, 10's pretty good. That's true. That is true. And they had a chariot, so... They had to have so many extras for this. Extras, sets, locations. It feels like something. Now you know where the money they didn't spend on the Crotons was. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty okay with that right now. So let's talk about episode three. Of course they got away in time. I did really love that that shot of after they drive back through the mist, just the open-mouthed Romans in shock at this. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> that was great. Then figuring out that, well, okay, that seemed to be a war. That, and I called it, I was like, they're all wartime. So then the War Games makes a lot more sense as a title. The title does give it away yeah. a bit once you see that. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now begins our quest for the map. I love the quest for the map. And they go to the safe and the doctor's like, I wonder if I can pick this lock. And Jamie's like, with a tuning fork? <laughs> it's worked before. I just like that it's a callback to a previous serial, which we're doing a lot in this serial, so it's fun. Yeah. I like the practicality of it, just breaking the candlestick in order to lengthen the fuse, which is a smart, simple plan that works and is logical. Mm -hmm. The doctor playing MacGyver, like our MacGyver from the Seeds of Death, you know, it's fine. Or Ransom as well. I mean, Jamie now, (laughs) having been hypnotized repeatedly, Jamie gags him and ties him up. This is definitely Ransom's bad day. He probably won't remember it, though. (laughs) Probably not. He'll go through that machine and he'll never remember it. Poor guy. And then we get on the road and we get captured by Germans eventually. Yay! The first German officer they meet. Uh, Any of you guys familiar with the the angry German on YouTube? No. No. So Riley, you might have seen him because he's done some soccer-related videos, and he's like, "Oh, good good evening! It has come to my attention that the English pronounce these names in this way. You are wrong." (laughs) (laughs) I just could couldn't help but but think of this guy. Oh, I thought you were you were gonna mention. I guess he doesn't show up until later. It's one of the the main baddies, uh, von Weich. Who, yeah. For all the life of me, it, he could be like Adrian Edmondson's dad. <laughs> Even his wow. accent sounds like when, when he would do a German thing. So it's kind of fun. Oh, it's so true. 
That actor, David Garfield, has a very long-running career that runs from basically the saint and the prisoner right through to the IT crowd. Good for him. Wow. So, (laughs) like, he's been in stuff. I mean, maybe he was on screen with Aid Edmondson at some point. Could be. And I wonder, with the character that he played here, if you are bald and have a scar, you must have a monocle. Yes. Obviously. British law. Yeah. Yeah. He looks so much like Blofeld. That too. Yeah, he really does. All right, so um, what's happening in the serial? The Doctor... Are you going to call out the return of the sonic screwdriver? Well, first I was going to call out the being Dr. John Smith. Yes. 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 So first we get the John Smith part, which is really fun because uh, that is not only a callback to a previous serial, but obviously it gets used many times throughout the Doctor's years. And yes, obviously now we get to the sonic screwdriver. Used to unscrew and screw in a screw. But without touching it. Yes. But without touching it. It's actual original purpose. Woo! I love the scene when General Smythe shows up at HQ and calls out the incompetence of the Germans, and we meet the war chief in all of his glory, oh, just yeah. strutting on the scene, and he just calmly goes, they also escape from you, General. I'm like, oh. He's so good. Isn't in this scene where we get the first use that I remember of interior monologue? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good point. Time travel, I wonder. I refer to Tim as 60s medallion man. <laughs> 60s swinging medallion man, but we can call him what you will. Where possibly could this be leading? I wonder. TARDIS noises and... The second I heard a TARDIS noise, because... After, you know, 50 years um, and, and more of Doctor Who, you can't get away from certain spoilers. And I was like, it's it's coming. I knew it's mm-hmm. been coming. <laughs> yeah. So. And it's not confirmed at this point, but the first hint of the Doctor's people since the monk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been quite a while since he showed up, too. So it's very cool. Yeah. You know, it's been three and a half, nearly four years in real time. So I think the average member of the audience probably would have forgotten about the monk by now. I, I want to just say one more thing. Sixties Medallion Man is so cool that he has Devo as an entourage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a good call. Thank you for calling those outfits out because, oh boy. There's some interesting costume choices here which I'm, I'm glad for because I think it yes. just makes Dragon Con that much easier. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What's nice about it too, though, is in all of the different war game time zones, it's all things that we are aware of and things that we know. It's like, okay, for World War One, we know what they were. For Romans, yes, they're going to be wearing toga type things and things of that nature. So they had to make the alien race, quote unquote, different. So they went that route. It might not have been the exact route I go down, but at least it's better than those weird, really short skirts that were done in the Dominators. Yeah, so, <laughs> but the guards still look a little bit fetishy in their outfits. So, <laughs> but they're not the Vord. But they're not the Vord. And and I know we were about to leave the HQ with with the War Chief, but there's one thing that kind of stuck in my craw a little bit before we head back out to the German camp. He tells Smythe that he wants them taken alive. And then immediately (laughs) Smythe sends out the instruction that the ambulance containing them must be destroyed at all costs. No instruction further, like, make sure they're not in it when you destroy it, but because we want to take them as prisoners. Just whatever you do, his main focus is destroy the ambulance. It's just, and he does it right in front of the war chief. 
It's like, what? What are you? He he must really be that incompetent. Well, he's also pissed that he got called out for his incompetence. Uh, Oh, he's about to get it a second time. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, the American Civil War Zone, since we all live in the American (laughs) South. There's some uh, wonderful accents here that are perfectly done. (laughs) I can't think of a better one other than maybe first season of True Blood in regards (laughs) to... Oh, dear. About Southern accents. (laughs) This is what it sounds like for Antony when Americans do British accents. Yes, it does. Except bizarrely Gwyneth Paltrow, she can actually do a very good one. But otherwise. So we we get Jamie and Carstairs versus American Civil War soldiers, which bizarrely is is a face-off that somehow really appeals to me, and I can't quite put my finger on why. But we also get this returning trope here, where they're captured by one side, rescued by the other, and then taken prisoner by the other side again. Yes. That does take me very briefly back to the German piece. One thing that I think is done really, really well is when von Weich hypnotizes the more junior officer. It all happens in German without subtitles, but we don't need to be told what's being said because we've seen it all before. Yep. And I thought that was just such a smart narrative device. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that. And I thought that their ability to speak German was good. Yeah. It didn't seem stifled at all. Everything I've seen him in, David Garfield, who played von Weich, always plays it with a German accent. I would think he's probably spent some time in Germany. So back to the American Civil War, what I found interesting was I think they must have been, I don't really know where they were located because it just seems so odd that the Yanks... I'll say, were so keen on them being bad guys from the very get-go. And then they like leaned into that like Southern hospitality thing by them being Mm -hmm. like, oh no, ma'am. And I was just like, in the middle of a war zone, I don't think the South would have been that hospitable, honestly. Probably not, but this is Britain in 1960. So let's just rely on stereotypes. Yeah, they don't understand that the bless your heart is like one of the worst things you can say to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't get stuff that was more stereotype. Like no one started off a sentence with I do declare. (laughs) I do declare. (laughs) But someone did say that someone doesn't take kindly. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's true very but you know one curry that's almost a kind of also that's kind of a old westy kind of thing too i know that we've already hinted on but david garfield was the actor's name correct for van wyke yeah who yes. then also plays the confederate as yes. well yeah. the accent work it's the same the accent alien. work on that the accent work as a southerner <laughs> is uh truly something to behold <laughs> It's quite amazing. It, it's it's really quite enjoyable to listen to because it's just so damn funny. <laughs> I mean, he's clearly hypnotized them all to believe that that's a good accent. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh... Before we get too far into episode four, we have basically the confirmation. Zoe's realization that the capsule must be bigger on the inside. The hints really are coming fast and hard at this point. There's that, and then Carstairs gets captured, and they talk about reprocessing. All right, on to episode four in that case. Yeah, because that's what the cliffhanger is. <laughs> they get separated because they go into one of the TARDIS-like machines. I don't know if it's ever mentioned on screen, but the script called them Sid Rats, so TARDIS backwards. It's It's not yet in this. Yeah, I can't remember whether yeah. it is in, in the second half or not. Is it just me, but with these cliffhangers, it feel in this particular serial, it feels a lot more dramatic. And is that because we all have the knowledge that this is the end? Yes and no. I still think that for episode one and episode 
three, I think they're really good cliffhangers. Two is not really that great of a cliffhanger to me. But I think even without us knowing it's the end, I still think that they're really well done. So I don't want to say that, oh, it's just us projecting. Now, when we get to episode five, yes, that is 100% me projecting. (laughs) But we'll get there. But yes, I I think these are very, they're well done. You also have that weight of knowing that this era is coming to an end. And you don't necessarily know when that might be unless you've seen it before or have spoilers for these characters. Mm-hmm. So it does yeah. inform that viewing experience. Plus, it's just it, there's a kind of a heaviness attention to it because of the war setting. Agreed. Moving on, we get some awesome goggles. We do. So I want to talk about the chief scientist. <laughs> I love the chief scientist. Oh, dear. <laughs> He's played by a gentleman called Vernon Dobchev, who apparently has had over 300 screen credits, has been in virtually wow. everything, ranging from some of our favourites like The Avengers through to Nicholas and Alexandra, The Spy Who Loved Me, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Still acting today and apparently was very well known in Hollywood as someone who was somehow at every single premiere, like every wow. single big film premiere. But was he in Harry Potter? He was not. Okay. But was he in Zed Cars? I don't know off the top of my head. It's not one I noted, and I normally note that if... Uh, we would like to apologize for our so. research department for failing you once again, <laughs> listen. <laughs> All right. He will be but, flogged. <laughs> Anthony, you can wax poetic on him, I suppose. I liked him. I thought he was a really good character. He played really well off of the Doctor. Like, him and Troughton. Yes that very very well this episode is where we start getting the curveball with the resistance we get the mysterious stranger rescuing jamie and lady J. yes mm-hmm. love him he's resistant to hypnotism yep resistant to hypnotism which i found interesting because just because they're strong-willed so would that mean like for example like with the doc obviously the doctor would probably be resistant maybe jamie might be resistant who knows because he's resisted it before yeah. In in the Macro Terror. Yes, he did. Resistant resistance. Moving oh. on. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was terrible as soon as I said it and was like, hmm, that might have been a mistake. But yeah, we get our resistance guy. I liked him a lot. Would have liked to have seen more of him. Uh, yes. And then they get one of my, my favorite cheap ways of doing things. They have a lecture as an exposition dump for their plan. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, again, the way that I look at what's happening is that it's like a school of sorts and they're learning. I don't know exactly all the things that they're learning because that was just talking about the reprocessing. Mm -hmm. But I would assume that they also have something about battle techniques and different strategies and, you know, tactics and things like that is my assumption since it's the war games and they have a whole bunch of different wars going on. Probably. I have a sinking feeling that the more we think about whatever their final plan is revealed to be, the less happy we're going to be. So I'm just going to kind of let that go to the side. <laughs> like, I'm trying to, but also at the same time, I'm like, if it's lectures, they have to have lectures on these other topics. Yeah. I think as a narrative device, it's a really effective way of delivering exposition without it seeming too forced. And more importantly, we get the Doctor and Zoe in their sunglasses. Those were just so weird to me because why were they there? It breaks the mood, but it amused me greatly. So I I gave it a pass. It was nice in this very heavy serial to have something I could I could laugh at and enjoy. Much like the hypnotism room with the swirly paint. 
Oh, yes. I like the swirly <laughs> paint. That that too. It doesn't quite fit the mood, but I enjoyed it anyway. I look forward to Patrick Troughton and Wendy Padbury's mid-1980s Devo cover album. <laughs> yes. I hear their, their rendition of Mongoloid is something out of this world. When do we talk about the Doctor wanting to utilize the Resistance? Is that in the next episode? I think that's later. Yeah, because okay. here we'll we have Carstairs in the uh, in the chair and mm, the okay. Doctor yes. just being the Doctor as hard as he can and interrupting and messing with things. And Every once in a while, I wonder why the Doctor can't just lay low. First off, how did no one not realize that he was never a student here or whatever they are? Who is this random dude who's asking all these questions? It's very smart because he tricks the chief scientist into showing him how to put the machine in reverse. So, you know, that's obviously going to play a part later. I'm with you there. The security chief, much as James Bree decides that he wants to talk like a Dalek, is completely incompetent. The security measures in this place are just terrible. <laughs> I mean, he needs to be fired. Absolutely. 100%. We do get introduced to more resistance fighters in the other side of things where Jamie and Jennifer are. I love just seeing that we're in the South for the Civil War and we get a Frenchman and just a whole <laughs> bunch of other random people from other wars. And I love it. I'm surprised, Julie, that you haven't mentioned Jamie's hero moment of taking down a soldier on horseback and then stealing the horse. What an absolute lad. <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful and amazing. Yes, 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 yes. We just got so far with the doctor that it like surpassed that moment because we just kept going on. Jamie gets a lot of fighting in this entire serial so far, and I love it. Fighting Jamie is best Jamie. There is one more moment in the Alien HQ that I, I really want to talk about. That moment when the Doctor and the War Chief come face to face and there's oh. a clear moment of recognition <laughs> between them. No words. Oh. It's entirely done through facial expression. It's brilliant acting from Troughton and Edward Brayshaw and it just sends shivers down my spine. It was wonderful. I've, I enjoyed it. I completely understand where you're coming from. Especially with the war chief being a little bit over the top, as sometimes happens, it just with the facial hair. With that facial hair, you have to be over the top. <laughs> but yeah, that moment where they locked eyes, you absolutely knew that you were like, oh, oh, they know each other. Yeah. And that was beautiful. I feel so bad for Carstairs. Oh. We've only had such, not, not a lot of time with him, but I really like him. Seeing him being controlled like that and nearly shooting Zoe. <gasps> oh. Carstairs' brain has got to be Swiss cheese by now. Not nearly as much as Ransom. Yeah, I mean, Ransom, but see, like with Carstairs, he had like the heavy duty machine in Alien HQ that like fried his brain. Again, this leads into the cliffhanger of him holding the gun to Zoe. Again, with our knowledge and things of that nature of what's going on, you really don't know that Zoe's going to make it out of there. Once we get into episode five, it's even more apparent as to something might happen because, you know, he actually pulls the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. So episode five, then. Chief scientist arriving just in time-ish. <laughs> yeah, that was the only thing that saved her. Yeah. Well, he could have gone for her with his hands if, you know, to try and strangle her or something if, if the chief scientist hadn't shown up. Fair enough. But it seems like a lot of our main characters are being shot. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also the way that he was acting, I don't know that physical force would be something he would have resulted to because to a certain degree, there seemed to be something like kind of pulling him back and the effort to pull a trigger is, is so slight. 
especially someone who's been in war, would be something that is much easier to do. But I don't know that he would have resulted into physical force. True. I agree. So we go back to the Civil War time period and they're talking about, you know what? Like, no, this is just a supply run. There's no tunnel. Stop looking for a tunnel. <laughs> it's just... And again, another instance of not listening to Jamie saying that, guys, it's not a tunnel. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. what he's saying is kind of unbelievable to them. So I can understand their hesitancy. I do love the convenient timing, though. As soon as he's like, this is what what it is, they don't believe him. And then suddenly one of the, the Sid rats materializes in the barn. Bloody typical. But he also um, caught Von Weick. Yes. Unveiling their, their little communication monitor thing. Yeah, that was wonderful. There was that weird fight that seemed really unnecessary between, was it Harper and someone else? Like, Yeah, the guy who wanted to kill them. He was the guy that got the supplies. That did seem like a bit of a padding fight. Like one of the few pieces of padding where I was just like, why? Because for the most part, there hasn't been a ton of unnecessary padding. I would agree. Yeah. And then we get quite possibly the best helmet we've seen in Doctor Who. It reminds me of the helmet from Jumanji, though. <laughs> <laughs> I just like how it, it kept going. At first, I thought he put a hat on and it's got a spotlight on it. What is going on? And then he folded it down. That hat. Yeah. Yes. When that scene happened, it was just this great, you know, he walks from behind the scenes up into a platform. It's very intimidating. You are the one who will answer questions. But first, allow me to put on this optometrist <laughs> equipment on my face. I know I've already joked about it, but James Bree's performance as the security chief is just so weird. I like it because it's weird. Because I kept wondering what's going on with this guy. Because he yeah. lied to the war chief about what Zoe told him. Yes. He doesn't trust the war chief. And I, I kept wondering, what is this guy's deal? What is he doing? I think it finally got to a point where really realizing the war chief is separate from these other individuals. And I think it's closer to the end of the episode, but they talk about how he was a traitor to his own people. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to kind of see him lie to him like that because until you really realize that he's not one of them because it's not obvious by appearance yeah uh, that if he's the war chief you should be listening to him shouldn't you oh he's not one of you so that's why you don't i think it's his choice in jewelry that makes him a traitor to his people but <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure big finish will follow up on that later at some point Talking about what's going on in HQ, they, there's an interesting comment about the resistance movement and how they're operating in most zones, and now there's a group of them in the headquarters. We, we started the story with something that seemed like it was going to be a, a historical. We've had lots of different nods to the tropes of the era. This is based under siege in reverse. I was wondering if you were going to mention that. Hmm. The connection I made was actually even to a previous doctor is really that if they're trying to organize a resistance, they need Vicky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Come and do the revolution thing. Yes. But yeah, no, it is. I guess it is a reverse base under siege. I didn't really think about that. There are also a couple of interesting moments with the doctor. Can someone remind me, have we seen him pulling smelling salts out before? I seem to think we have, but I can't remember when. It sounds familiar, but I can't remember exactly uh, when. He pulls them out here to revive Zoe. Also, one thing I noticed was he refers to World War One as the 1914 to 1918 war. I was trying to figure out why, and then I realized it was in front of Carstairs. I'm kind of thinking, is he trying to avoid spoilers? 
Yeah. World War One, implying that there's more than one. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably very important. <laughs> I think it's partially that. I think it's partially the Doctor being not just from Earth. That could be a reference of there could be world wars from other places. I'm surprised he didn't go with Great War because that's generally how it had been identified. Yeah, there's probably a multitude of reasons why he went with the dates instead. Mm -hmm. Before we even get to him pulling out the smelling salts, I really like the scene with the doctor and the scientist where he's basically trying to get Carstairs deprogrammed and he just butters up the scientist so much and messes with stuff. Just just does his Trouton thing. It's awesome. It's wonderful, and I think it works so well as his last rodeo. It's good to see him doing that one last time. I'm just kind of upset that even though we have like a German zone, he wouldn't be able to play the German doctor again <laughs> incognito. That would have been no great. von Weir, only von Weig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. too many von von Ws. So we want to go back to the Civil War because we do have to touch upon Jamie's um, not so casual misogyny. I do love how Lady Jennifer says <laughs> it's, it's because I'm a woman, and is it isn't it? And he goes, No, well, yes. yes. <laughs> I think he was pretty casual about it. But again, there's a few things is, again, he comes from a different time where obviously women didn't fight at that period. Well, with exceptions. And again, for him, it's more of a keeping her safe more so than anything else. Not to say that she's not capable. It's just that's what his character is and always has been. But then what was nice is that she was given a job to do with nursing people, which is much more of her wheelhouse than trying to storm some sort of base. So I think it was nice that they threw that in there so that it wasn't just her sitting around twiddling her thumbs. Making coffee for the boys. But it's Jamie. Anything less than him telling her to get into the kitchen and give him a sandwich, you're going to give him a pass (laughs) for. Come on. (laughs) This is true. So speaking of Jamie and the Resistance, let's talk about the lead into that cliffhanger. I feel like there's some real tension that's built up here. We hear that the Sidrat didn't follow protocol when returning, and you know he's heading into a trap. Mm. Yep. And it's just brutal, because he's gunned down, along with the rest of the Resistance, as they come out. Because you already know Fraser Hines is leaving, you, you don't know whether or not this is it for him. Yeah, I'm not okay. I'm not okay, guys. It was... I loved how they did that shot. I love that he is the last one standing, which I'm I'm not too terribly surprised about. And they just leave you hanging and you really don't know if he's alive or not. Really good cliffhanger so far. This is probably the biggest one. And this is where we <laughs> end this episode. Can someone pretend to shoot Riley so we've got our own cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll dramatically fall on the ground now. You can't, this does not transfer over podcast, but I'm, I'm dramatically falling right now. <laughs> that brings us to the end <laughs> with Riley on the ground, having dramatically fallen down. We will be back next time around to discuss the second half of this epic story very quickly before we wrap up. One item of mail. Our old friend, Bill Lamond wrote to us after listening to our episode on The Dominators to tell us that we make this so much fun. And we've brought him back to The Dominators and connected him with all the DVD extras that he's heard and read with that story and that we brightened his days. Bill, once again, thank you so much for writing to us. As you can hear, we do like to read out emails, Facebook comments, etc. on the show, so please do feel free to reach out. As always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have-
have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, They Shot Winnie the Pooh, was recorded on Wednesday the 14th of April 2021. If this is your first time listening, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you find yourself in World War I, don't panic. It might not really be World War I.